So we're in the righteousness revealed through the gospel of Romans, and through that it's going to be the rejection of righteousness in Romans 1 through 3, but I want to start us with a matter of perspective. If you look on the screen, you'll see that this quote from Martin Luther, I believe, really expresses where we're at with Romans. The epistle is the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. So I want to start us today by anchoring our minds appropriately. We're going to actually start our first talking point because it's a matter of perspective. So in this first talking point, I'm going to ask you guys, and you guys give me your answers out loud. Give me one word to describe the greatness and vastness of God. What, what would a word be that you guys would think? Greatness and vastness of God. Amazing. Amazing. What was it? Love. Mercy. Indescribable. That's a great song that I love. Uncontainable. My son said, awesome. And now Adam's going to just start repping the whole song as we go through. But the second part of this, what are some tangible examples of everything we just talked about, of the greatness of God in our world? What are some tangible things like uh, the heartbeat of a baby? What, what do you guys think? What are some tangible examples? Answered prayer. Answered prayer, Jan. Right. Mountains. Mountains. Thanks, Mom. Mo said, three days changes everything. Anyone else? The creation of human life. The creation of human life. And as, as I go around the room, and, and you guys heard, what talks about the greatness of God, and what are some examples? All of you had the right answers. All of you did. Anything you have to describe the greatness of God, believe it or not, is the right answer. And also, it falls ridiculously short. We don't even have in our own minds the ability to conceptualize God. We think we do. We have words. We read a Bible. The, the God of the universe, when Jesus says to the woman at the well, drink from me and from this well you'll have living waters, no matter how far down we go into our well, we can never have that. Jesus had to come down and he had to give us his life. We can't describe that. We don't understand that. We are all unfit to do this justice, even thinking about the eruption of your mind about God. And that's how we're going to start today. We are so far removed from understanding God that any way we would choose to think about would be horribly short. But that difference is what we need to remember as you walk into our passage today. So open your Bible to Romans 3. So Romans 3, it's going to be right, the fifth book, sixth book of the New Testament. And as you're getting there, I'm going to summarize where we've been. You'll see that in chapter one was about sin and the verse I was thinking about for the exchange of truth of a God, the truth of God for a lie. In chapter two is about what God must do with sin. And, and we know that the judgment of God readily falls upon those who practice such things. That was two, two. And in today's message, we're going to talk about the question, who is guilty against God? In light of chapters 1 and 2, and in light of the wonderful prayer time that we had, that focused, if you remember, something that Zach said, how our puny little minds can't even understand how prayer is such a foundational part of who we are, that's what we're going to walk into today. So our training thought is something that maybe parents with kids have heard before, 
I didn't agree to the rules, so why am I guilty? I didn't agree to your rules, why am I guilty? You can pretend you've never said that to God. But you all do, I do. I'll tell you right now that as a police officer, my whole world is centered around rules. In fact, I, I'm sure I broke rules coming to church today even. You can't even stop that, right? And so I didn't agree to those rules, so why am I guilty? Well, at this point, I understand why I'm guilty. I'm going to expound upon that through three training truths today. The training truths are on the screen. Both Jews and Gentiles are guilty of sin. One verse, verse 9, as revealed in the scriptures, verses 10 through 19, showing all are guilty, even if trying to follow the law. One verse, verse 20. So here's something to think about with laws. There are about 2 million laws in the United States. And if a man could familiarize himself with them at the rate of two laws a day, he could be qualified to act as a law-abiding citizen in the space of just 6,000 years. All the laws of ancient Rome were ordered by Emperor Justinian to be compiled during the 6th century AD. With 16 assistants, Tribonium came up with 2,000 volumes after three years. We have a focus on laws. We have a focus to define the undefinable and to hold people accountable in some way. And we have a propensity for lawmaking and lawkeeping, and as we saw last week, but it's impossible to follow all the laws. And again, as a police officer, I constantly reminding people, you didn't follow those laws, and now there's consequences, right? Well, what were the people of Israel facing? They had 10 commandments. That wasn't hard enough. They had 613 laws in the Torah. And those laws covered aspects, as you can see on the screen, of family and hygiene and diet. And there are 39 laws. Did you know this? 39 prohibitions of things that they were not allowed to do just on the Sabbath relating to work. Just that. 39 different things. It's amazing. And you know why the laws really bother us, though? Here's the issue. The laws bother us because our identity is in ourselves and how great we are and how we contribute to the world instead of letting the identity of Christ flow through us. Because if we understood who Christ was flowing through us, then his laws would make us better and not sad, right? Over the past few weeks, we've seen how God's people have a sin problem, right? And how a righteous judge must deal with that sin issue. Yet, we get mad at God for judging us, but how many people do you judge and do I judge every day for the same kind of things? So follow me for our first point as we unpack a response to this. Both Jews and Gentiles are guilty of sin in Romans 3.9. This will be our first point. So the verse reads, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. <clears throat> Excuse me, this was the verse on the bulletin, not because it's the first verse, but because it's the most in-your-face wake-up call to the Roman Christians that they had. They were facing all these laws. But remember how they started. John, in his opening, he read to us that in Isaiah, all have gone astray. And not, not all could or would or maybe should, all have gone astray. And that means all. All means all. All means Jews, all means Gentiles, all means Republicans, all means Democrats, all means vaxxers, all means non-vaxxers, all means all, 
any concept you have of some group of people means all. And so they've all gone astray. We have all gone astray. So based on that truth that we saw in chapters 1 and 2, we know that, that sin is present throughout mankind. From the beginning, sin has been present. And God stays true to his nature of justice to judge sin. And we see that through the laws, the prophets, and, and kings, that, that everybody had to deal with sinners. Yet, the miracle of salvation, you'll see it on the screen, and I encourage you to write this down. The miracle of salvation is not that we get to go to heaven. It's that we don't automatically go to hell. I'm going to say it again. The miracle of salvation is not that we get to go to heaven. is that we don't automatically go to hell. That's true. It's the work of the cross, the atonement of Christ, that saves us. It gives us that free access. That's the miracle. And you know what? This is mercy. There is a difference between mercy and common grace. There is a difference. This is mercy. The difference here lets the gratefulness that we have to be at the front of our minds. Because everybody is a sinner. All means all. And David reminds us in Psalm 51 that we were, as it says, conceived in sin. And this is a huge problem if God cannot allow sin into his holy presence. Would you agree? So we look at both Jews and Gentiles guilty of sin as revealed in Scripture, showing that all are guilty, even if trying to follow the law. So let's talk about sin for a second. Let's talk about this for a second. And I want you just to, to go with me on this. As a second talking point, you can read this on the screen or at the back of your bulletin. Think about what your biggie sin is in your life that grants you membership into this club that Paul talked about in verse 9. Think about it for a second. Okay, what we're going to do, and actually, I wanted this up here, but I'm going to pray even more in depth about this. I want you to close your eyes now. You think about this. Close your eyes. I can see all of you up here, so some of you don't have your eyes closed. Close your eyes. Close your eyes and think about what is the big sin the biggest thing that you've never told anybody that you know you can keep well hidden that, that 20 years ago you knew was a secret and you've done well keeping a secret. Now pray. Thank you, Lord, that you love me more than this sin and for forgiving me forever even as you put my sin on your son forever and ever and any level of gratefulness won't express just doesn't express Lord we love you and we are we are humbled that you would take the ink off the certificate of debt and put it on your son in the name of Christ I pray amen So what sins does he judge? And what sins does his grace overlook? Because remember, there's that whole, well, the, the free grace. If I, if I just believe in God, his grace covers me, so I'll just do what I want to do. But I didn't agree to your rules, so why am I guilty? Well, training truth number two is going to continue that thought, that both Jews and Gentiles are guilty of sin as revealed in the Scriptures. A further proof is needed about the totality of sin. I just, we're going to break down 10 through 19, but 10 through 12 shows that sin affects everyone born of human parents. 
And then 13 through 18, sin affects every part of a man. So you can even paraphrase it if you want to take notes and look back at this verse later. Psalm 14.1 says, basically, there is not a single righteous person at all. And it goes on from there. But Paul's entire theology is based on the Old Testament. As I said before, you, you can't unhinge the Old Testament from what's going on today. So Paul is bringing to these Roman Christians the truth of the scriptures. What are the scriptures? The scriptures of the Old Testament. And so everything that, that he had known as, as a good Pharisee in training, he is referencing and showing that we can't meet all of these rules. And with a God that will judge righteously, what do we do about that? What do we do about that? So as I said in Psalm 14.1, you can see on the screen, the fool has said there is no God. They are corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. So we are back here at Romans 3.9, moving into 10 through 18. And now I'm going to apologize in advance to my friend David Kennedy for how fast this is going to go. But I want you to keep up with this. You can make notes if you can. Um, I, I want to point out some things. This is going to tie in. I want to read these verses, and I'm going to highlight the human nature component of sin that accompanies all this. Now, Paul is pulling all of this information from the Old Testament and what he says. <sighs> okay, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And it reveals universal unrighteousness. Verse 11, there is none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. Shows us the ignorance we have and independence in our lives towards God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together, they have become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. We have a complete lack of goodness. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Man's throat is full of rottenness. His tongue is deceitful. His lips are venomous. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. All we do is swear against the holiness of God. 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Our feet run towards murdering the identity of other people in light of God. Verse 16, destruction and misery in their paths. Because of that, we do nothing but leave behind trouble and destruction. Verse 17, in the path of peace, they have not known. Not one of us knows how to make peace on our own. In verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In all that, we have no regard for the creator of the universe. He's still with us. Good. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So Psalm 14 exposed some of those truths, as does Isaiah, if you're taking notes, 59, verses 7 and 8. I'm going to read this. Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, devastation, destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They've made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. So think about that. Isaiah, as we know, written 700 years before the birth of Christ, is now being used to illustrate the truth that Paul is pointing out. That, 
that everything we're doing is leading to destruction. Every hope in our heart is wicked. Every path we travel is for murder and destruction. Gee, that's encouraging. But this is heavy. It's heavy stuff to wrestle with. That's why I started a gospel moment with legacy impact of truth. When you see yourself in light of who God is, you recognize you have nothing to offer. You have nothing to offer. You don't. And he has everything to give. The Bible doesn't pull punches. It doesn't. And Paul is set on training people to embrace God's truth even as he walks into and through verse 19. They've made their past crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. Do you guys know what that means up there? What's that? My son says pause or rest or reflection or contemplation. Because that doesn't hit you what I just said. They've made their past crooked. We have made our past crooked. Whoever treads on them, that's all of us, does not know peace. I don't want to be a man who doesn't know peace. I want to be a man who leads my family well and others into a path of peace. But without him, Christ, I cannot. And so take this minute and take a breath. So both Jews and Gentiles all are guilty of sin as revealed in the scriptures you can see what verse 20 is going to lead us to, but let's look how Paul concludes this, okay? Paul is going to conclude this thought. Now, verse 20 reads, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For th through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And we're going to come back to that. But I want you to consider the word therefore in Romans 20. So it's before they even get there that it gives the reason why the whole world is guilty. That's the answer to your question that was listed. Why, who is guilty? No flesh can obey God's law. And there was a, a talk last week about, um, two weeks ago, about how doers of the law shall be justified, Romans 2.13. And then Doug taught on chapter 2 through that. But no one can do what the law demands. We need to cry out for God's mercy. It's his grace and neither Jew or Gentile can obey this because we as, our, as sinners can't save ourselves. That means that what we can be saved through and who saves us is going to dominate our thoughts. In fact, it dominates Paul's thoughts the rest of the entire letter. The next 13 chapters in Romans are going to talk about this because no one can be justified by keeping the law. The law was not given to justify people, but to produce the knowledge of sin, not the knowledge of salvation. The knowledge of sin, not the knowledge of salvation. That's what the law is for. We can never know what a crooked line looks like unless we also see what a straight line looks like. The law is the straight line. When men test themselves by it, they see how crooked they are. Another example, we can use a mirror to see our face as dirty, but the mirror is not designed to wash a dirty face. You can use a thermometer to take your temperature and see that you're sick, but swallowing a thermometer doesn't make you better. The law is designed in purpose as a reflection to show us sin, but Jesus Christ came down to be the remedy for that sin. Amen? That's the truth. 
Paul exposes how no justification possible by man can separate us from the sin nature that we inherited, that I talked about in Psalm 51. So he closes this, going back to verse 20, to finish answering the question, I didn't agree to the rules, why am I guilty? I'm going to read this verse again, and I'm going to take a a pause. Verse 20 says, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You need to make a note on whatever note you're taking now. This is the most important concept of this section. And I will tell you, as we're going to talk about justification in a minute, justification by what Christ did, did through atonement, that's the most important concept in this book. So let's look at justified for a second. Justified. The Greek, dikaiō. The Greek is dikaiō. So say that with me. Dikaiō. I will do it again on three, on three, okay? It's one, two, three, dikaiō. The accent's on the third syllable. I had to learn that listening to it about a thousand times. The Greek dikaiō, it means, literally in Greek, look, vindicated by complying with the requirements. It, it brings out the fact that a person can be vindicated by complying. It, it can also mean that someone is permitted to be righteous because they can bear for themselves the remedy to their own condemnation. But see, when used in this way, the dikaiō to justify never means to make anyone righteous on their own because they violate the law, but it means that somebody else has to come and take the place. It's, it's written in a way that is passive done unto you in present tense, or um, future tense. So it's a past action with future consequences. It was done for you, justified. In the New Testament, man can't do anything to free themselves from the sentence of guilt. I mean, as a cop, when, when a guilty person pays the penalty of the crime, they're freed from prison. We can never pay the penalty. We can never, we can't live our lives paying any kind of penalty. We, we try to live our lives complying with the requirements set up by God to be vindicated, but we can't be vindicated because we can't comply with all those laws. So the dikaiō says that somebody else has to fix this. No one ever can on their own. We needed God himself and the person of Jesus to perfectly live out this requirement to be able to vindicate us. And a Greek scholar, Spiro Zodiades, said, Thus, dikaiō does not mean the mere declaration of innocence, but the liberation from sin, which holds a man prisoner. It's a great thought, isn't it? I want to invite the music team to come back up and start getting the communion couples to go around the room. We're going to walk through our third point, and as they get set up, I want you to think about how we're going to transition into communion, okay? Our third talking point on the back of your bulletin reads as follows. Alone at your tables, as we walk into communion, think about what you've both been freed from and welcomed into under God's judgment, filtered through Jesus' death on the cross. You have a white no card or... Or if you don't have the note card, you can just write it on the space that's on the back of your bulletin. Write down these things, the things you've been freed from, the things you've been welcomed into, 
And as you go for communion, punch it onto the cross. Not literally, just hang them on the nails on the cross. Because remember what John said. The ink was transferred and put on the cross and Jesus spread out his arms and covered it. So we think about today's message. The question was, who is guilty against God? And we're going to walk into communion in a moment. And then after I talk, I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, please join one of the couples serving communion as you hang your card on the cross and think about what it had to cost to be set free. So we're left at the end of verse 20. It's a jumping off point for the rest of the letter. Paul does explode from here after almost three full sections on setting the foundation to wielding God's word like a master surgeon during surgery to open up the hearts of the Roman Christians, which he will do in the next 13 chapters. Doubt, despair, depression, discouragement, discontentment, the five D's of the devil. Paul has brought us through almost three chapters to expose how our sin nature started and how it takes root in our hearts. The sin can be a byproduct of one of those five Ds. But Paul doesn't end the story there. And and neither do we. Because as sealed saints, listen to this, as sealed saints, we are not sinners hoping to be made right. We are sealed saints who sometimes stray onto the crooked path of our own desire, right? We are sealed saints. We cannot be overtaken or indwelt by the enemy. And he can mess our circumstances, like he did with Job, with Abu's reading. But wherever the trials come from, God not only promises, but equips us with the way out. So if that's the case, why are we guilty? Why are we guilty? Let me tell you, there has always been a standard that no one can meet. Always. Do you remember when I started us off thinking about the greatness of God and the separation? Man is here. God, I can't even point to a spot where he would be. It's so far above my understanding. There's always been a standard none of us can meet. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son as a ransom, which means to buy back for an equal price with no leftovers. He bought back everyone who would believe. The necessary judgment that comes from God for not complying with those rules was poured out on Jesus instead of us. So to be vindicated by complying with the requirements is something none of us can do. So God said, you know what? I'll do it for you onto my son. He can take it. And in the moment that Jesus hung his head and yielded his spirit with it is finished, we could immediately raise our heads high to heaven to enter into his rest. People, listen, the only place to begin is knowing you have to be justified to be saved. This is the greatest communion of all. Pray with me. Father God, your words are truth. And we we come to your word seeking answers. Why is there a war? Why is there poverty? Why is there pain? Why is there misery? 
Why, why, Lord, do you allow marriages to fall? Why, Lord, do you allow children to be hurt? And then we stop and we remember, you've already dealt with all of the why questions when you put your son on a cross. Every question that ever had any birth in our hearts is answered on the death of Jesus. Everyone. So Lord, as you gave up your spirit and said, it is finished. You weren't just telling those people that I could hear. You were telling us all. It's finished. So stop worrying. Stop trying to meet all of these laws of your own creation. Start by just being grateful. Your word says to love God and to love others. That's it. Your word says if we believe in our hearts and if we confess with our tongue that you're Lord and Savior, that we'll be saved. Everyone who is called upon the name of the Lord will find justification, the dikaio of our spirit walking with you forever, forever. And that miracle of salvation that doesn't put us right into hell brings us into your presence. That's a communion worth celebrating. And I'm grateful, Lord, that I didn't have to come up with a solution to figure out my own justification. Because you so loved the world, you gave us your one and only son that any who would believe in him would be saved. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the truth of your word brought out in scripture today. And all God's people said, amen.